start off by saying it is uh, it is official. I have uh, two of my daughters now who will be attending uh, discipleship training school at YWAM of the Ozarks this fall, uh, spending six months of their life committed to growing in Christ and spending time on mission. Uh, a number of you have already asked how you can help support them in that, and they need that. They appreciate that. Uh, we will be setting up a special fund here at the church so you can uh, give your donations uh, to their mission to the church, and that will that will come to them. As I think about uh, my own household, uh, having my uh, two of my kids already moved out and two of them leaving in the fall, trying to imagine what the new normal will be in our lives. The new normal is one of those uh, more resilient conversations that we've been having as a nation lately, uh, particularly in light of the pandemic. We can't seem to stop talking about the new normal. Everything is, uh, is going to be different, and it's going to be uh, that way forever. And so we have all these uh, ongoing conversations about all masks and social distancing, will that, uh, will that last? Will that come back up every flu season? Uh, a lot of speculation for a time there that the, the, the handshake was going to completely die. That would go away forever. Uh, now there's talk about, you know, will there be future lockdowns? Will those things, uh, will those things occur again? And it sort of makes sense that we would be having that conversation about the new normal because if, in fact, science has told us that all of these things were better for us, then shouldn't that become our new norm? But, of course, the truth is, as we're, we find out more and more, uh, we didn't really have that much science to go on early on in this experience. There was a lot more emotion and speculation than anything else. And so... Uh, a lot of decisions were made, not so much based on some objective truth, but uh, what seemed to make sense in the moment. And as we have more time and actual research takes place, the studies continue to reveal that most of the things that we did to mitigate the pandemic likely made the pandemic worse. So... There's, uh, there's even some research that indicates that as much of uh, as a, a third of the excess deaths in this country are not so much related to COVID as they're related to our response to COVID and our, uh, the limitations that we imposed on uh, uh, medical care. And yet, this conversation continues. It's a resilient conversation. The control of information has been resilient. There are things that you still uh, apparently cannot say in social media, questions that you cannot ask. We're still pretending that we know. We're pretending that we knew what we were doing then, and we're pretending that we know what we're doing now, because it feels better to pretend that we know. It occurs to me that that's how a lot of new normals emerge in our culture. It's not so much that there's been an enlightenment, that there's been a, a wealth of new information, as much as it is the blind leading the blind, the readily deceived, 
among us feeding on a diet of cultural chaos. You get right down to it, the new normal in our culture is there is no normal. As the culture has dismissed objective truth and has embraced the subjective emotional experience as the only source of real truth, there is, in effect, no objective or absolute standard against which to evaluate what is true. There is neither the truth of God that we would argue in favor of or even the uh, truth of just evidence. Facts don't particularly matter because it is our subjective emotional experience that defines everything. But as I've said before, if sanity is the ability to differentiate reality from delusion, but there is no objective basis for what is reality, then we are all, every one of us, sane and insane all at the same time. Because there is no standard by which we understand these things to be true or not true. Normal is already a problematic concept. We think of normal as being something that's fairly static, but the reality is normal just means uh, consistent with social norms, and social norms change. It's uh, kind of like uh, morality. We talk about morality as if it was a, a consistent sort of eternal thing. Morality is just a consistency with social norms. It's what is accepted uh, behavior and ideology within the culture. We incorrectly associate normal with good. We think that if a thing is normal, that means that it's good. Sometimes it means that. A lot of times it does not. Here's the reality. We talk about what's normal or what's moral. These are transient ideas. They change. They evolve. They, uh, they move and shift with the culture. They are, in fact, not the same thing as goodness or righteousness. Those are absolute ideas. They uh, at least should be eternal ideas. So where what is normal is socially defined, goodness has to be defined by something else. It has to be uh, a, a more absolute truth. But since we associate normal with good, we like to make things that we like seem normal. Normal can evolve, and sometimes we change norms to reflect our new understanding of what is right. At one point uh, in, the, in the history of, Ameri of uh, well, really world civilization, slavery was embraced as a normal part of human existence. We come to a time of change, uh, a time of enlightenment, a time of growth, and we've determined that that is not should not be normal. And so the norms change in order to reflect that new understanding. But sometimes 
we change the norms in order to try to redefine for the culture what is right. If we can make it seem normal, then it is somehow righteous. And we regularly normalize previously abnormal behavior. But sometimes that's a good thing. For an unbeliever, worshiping God, coming together here on Sunday morning and worshiping God is kind of a, not a normal thing. It doesn't feel normal. It feels a little bit weird. But what we want is for the new believer to begin to incorporate the worship of God into their lives such that they normalize it. It becomes a normal part of their life, a normal part of their existence. But because we confuse normal with good, we normalize things sometimes that are wrong that we want to make right. Things that are inconsistent, things that are objectively wrong, things that are biblically sinful. We have this idea that we can overcome that wrong by making these things socially acceptable. But beyond that, really kind of come to a point in our culture where normal is no longer desirable. It's almost an insult to be called normal. You're so normal. You're not unique enough. You're not outside. You're not in the fray enough. You're kind of no one in the culture until you find some identity that is sufficiently outside the norm as to define you. And so everybody's got to have some dysfunction, some oppression, some uh, unique sexuality, some diagnosis. And we, we wear these uh, things really as kind of badges of honor. We have more children in the United States today right now who have a mental health diagnosis than we have ever had before. Now, part of that may be that we actually have a mental health crisis on our hands. I think a lot of it is due to the fact that we're just obsessed with labeling everybody one way or another. Normal is no longer desirable. We, we want to have something, even if it's a defect, even if it's a weakness, we want to have something that sets us apart and makes us special. So basically, if we were to summarize what's going on, we are all drawn to distinctions of identity for all the wrong reasons. And we are supported in that process by a culture of chaos. Now, I taught a class here on identity uh, a while back. And in that class, one of the things I presented is this idea I've been working on. I call it the continuum of identity. And uh, in this continuum of identity, we sort of start at life out on this little island. We are born into the world. We are placed in the garden. We come into existence. And from that island, we have inherently some understanding, some knowledge of God. We can see him. We can connect with him at some level, even from, from the very beginning. 
this is kind of a fascinating thing. But, uh, you don't actually have to teach children to believe in God. Children inherently believe in the existence of some kind of greater power outside of themselves. Uh, this is, a, this is a, uh, Deborah Kellerman from Boston University wrote this in a uh, journal here recently called uh, Are Children Intuitively Theists is the name of the article. And she says this, although children are not entirely indiscriminate, they do indeed evidence a general bias to treat objects and behaviors as existing for a purpose and also broadly inclined to view natural phenomenon as intentionally created, albeit by a non-human agent. Now, what does that mean? It means essentially this, that in their research, they found that by the time a child was four or five years old, they assumed that everything that they encountered existed for a purpose and was therefore created by something. They are also old enough at that point to recognize that mommy and daddy are not capable of creating everything that I encounter. And so they assume that there is some greater personality, some higher power, some higher wisdom, some engineer that has created all that they see. We quickly come about the business of teaching this out of them. But this is what, at four or five, this is how they're making sense of the world. Paul in Romans 1 calls it God's invisible qualities that are, that are present in his creation. He can be seen in what he has created. But the world is busy about the business of making sure that our view of God is obscured. And we as individuals, we all sort of venture off of the island. We venture into worldliness, into the sea. And there's a thing about being out in the sea is that you can still see God from that vantage point, but you rarely do. And you rarely do because you're so focused on just staying above water. You're so focused on what's going on around you, uh, life and existence around you, so focused on the sea, it's harder to witness the God who created everything. And this is the context in which Paul has been talking to us about our earthly nature. The earthly nature has this really narrow focus. It draws our attention away from God, and it focuses our attention on the broken things of creation. It narrows our focus to misinformation. And so it has become increasingly normal to self-identify in the context of that chaos. To be in the midst of the sea, in the midst of a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding, and to come to these very firm conclusions about our identity and who we are. We are, in essence, drowning in deceptive philosophies, and we are assuming that we have a great deal of clarity. 
And in our culture, so revered is the idea of identity, and so revered is the idea of our inherent human wisdom, our ability to discern these things, that our declaration of identity is almost unassailable. It cannot be called into question at all. And it doesn't matter if it's unhealthy, it doesn't matter if it's unnatural, it doesn't matter if it's unrealistic, it doesn't matter if it's ungodly. We cannot question anyone's self-declared identity. Well, along comes Paul in Colossians 3. Let's reread our passage from last week. Verses 5 through 8, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So here's, here's essentially what, what Paul, part of what Paul was telling us. Our earthly nature twists creation into something that God never intended it to be. It is a broken version. It is a fallen version. And so everything good, when it's viewed through this lens of distortion, itself becomes distorted. And so the earthly nature incorporates its distorted view of creation into its understanding of self. So whatever immorality, whatever lust, whatever evil desire, these all become part of our identity. Because we're not starting with God's creation and working from there. We're starting with the fallen and broken version of God's creation. We're viewing the entire world and our entire self through the lens of that brokenness. And we are assembling into an identity all the various broken pieces which we have encountered. One of the things that we need to understand about these identities that we assemble from broken pieces is they don't magically become whole simply because we've put the broken pieces together. And so not only is identity in our culture today incredibly subjective, subjective to the point of almost being meaningless, but most people confidently, adamantly defend the broken pieces that they understand to be their identity. Paul says, however, this was your old life. You now have a new life. Paul tells us that not only can we change our identity, but we, in fact, must change our identity from something that's very broken to something that is whole. The problem is that most of us are deeply, deeply invested in our broken identity. We draw a weird sort of value from them. We make justifications about the things that we do and the the way that we are based on our understanding 
of who we are. And so I've known children who crave abuse because it's their understanding of who they are. I've known children who cling to feelings of worthlessness no matter how much affirmation that you give them. I've known adults who survive life as codependents, even though you could point out all of the things that they have, the ways that they have damaged themselves and others by living this way, they can't quite let go of it. I've known addicts who will risk their life for the next high. So what if I told you this morning that I self-identify as overly thin? Yes, I'm a beanpole. I don't know what it is about my metabolism. I just pound away as much fat, sugar, and carbohydrates as I can, and still I just look like this. Can't put on any weight. Just too thin. You would think I'm either joking or I have lost touch with reality, right? One percent, according to researchers, one percent of adolescent girls in this country have anorexia. One percent. Out of every hundred girls you meet, one of them believes that she's too fat, believes that she needs to be thinner, and she will do all kinds of things that will damage herself in order to achieve some unrealistic goal. Now, there are boys that are affected by this, but it affects girls at a ratio of about 9 to 1. Why is that? Well, speculation is, and I think a reasonable speculation, is that we, we have imposed such unrealistic standards on young girls that they are always trying to live up to that they are particularly vulnerable to this. And here's the thing. Having worked with some of these girls, I tell you that no matter what the reality of their situation is, they absolutely believe that they need to lose another pound. It is deeply and resiliently held that this is, in fact, a part of their identity. It is remarkably difficult to change. It is a broken idea that is fed by the brokenness of the world around them. Here's what you need to know about this. The resilience of an empty philosophy is not evidence of its reality. Just because we experience things in a powerful way just because we feel them with great intensity, great passion, and great strength does not make them true, does not make them real. The doctrine of relativism treats personal perception as a kind of God. It's an idol that we worship. Whatever it is that you perceive, whatever it is that you see, whatever you understand about yourself and the world around you, no matter how broken the lens that you look through, we must all honor and celebrate your understanding of things. And so your feelings are what you are, even if they are at odds with an objective reality. 
our sexuality defines us, our emotional perception defines us, sometimes our mental illness defines us, our dysfunctions, even our sins define us. And the dangerous thing about all of this is this assumption that our self-discovered identity is immutably part of who we are, the inescapable reality of our existence. Come back to Paul in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Paul says, look, don't perpetuate these deceptions because you are not who you were. That's very important because we, we live in a culture that says who, who you are is the defining factor in everything. This business of identity and the way that we think about identity in the culture, it defines everything. It is the unassailable absolute truth of our existence. Paul says otherwise. He says you have Frankenstein together a self from the broken pieces of a broken creation. And that life was a lie. And it was a lie regardless of what broken idea or what godlessness it sprang from. But your new life is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of God. In other words, Paul says, Identity is not actually a function of how well we know ourselves. Identity is a function of how well we know God. That's a radical, biblical idea about identity that I believe our culture is suffering for not knowing. We do not define ourselves through our own broken perception of things. We are defined by God's perception of us. And as we grow towards God, we are improving our perception. Our, our perception begins to look a little bit more like his perception. We begin to not understand God through the brokenness of creation as we have known it, but we begin to understand the brokenness of creation through God's eyes as he intended it. And so Paul says in verse 11, he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Certainly Paul is not saying that these distinctions don't exist as a matter of reality, as a matter of our existence. But he is saying they do not have power over who we are. In other words, the supremacy of Christ is the only distinctive that actually defines us. It's fascinating because the world is going to offer you every imaginable distinctive by which to come to terms with who you are. And if you come up with an idea of who you are, 
that is influenced, driven by the world, that is built from broken pieces, that is unhealthy for you, that is ungodly according to God's word, the world will help you celebrate all of that. Because the world has a very different idea of identity than God does. It is our understanding that the supremacy of Christ reaches into me. That his understanding of me is in fact my identity. And I don't need to so much understand uh, about myself. I don't need to so much go searching for myself. I need to go searching for God so that God can tell me who I am. It is an ideal, surely, because we will spend all of our existence trying to figure out uh, how broken our vision has been. But it is an ideal worth working toward because God's definition of us is so much truer, so much realer, and so much better than the definitions that we have provided ourselves. Thank you.